It's Thursday, June 15th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You can probably tell. I'd like to be accurate. I don't want to get things wrong. So the other day on this show, when I was talking about Canadian wildfires, I quoted from the journal Nature, as opposed to the state of the physical world, including all flora and fauna nature. No, the journal Nature. But they're authoritative. And in explaining what happened with or what were the causes of the Canadian wildfires, we went through a few things. But they said, and this is a paragraph, had no blaming El Nino. There is no solid explanation for this year's anomalous spring. Then they quote an expert who says, yeah, there's global warming going on all the time, but the U.S. National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, we're going to call them NOAA from now on, confirmed that El Nino has arrived, but the effects are not expected to show up until later in the year. So we just figured out there was an El Nino. We saw it coming. It's arrived, but that is not the blame, the blame for the Canadian fires. But then I was reading in the New York Times, the journal, the New York Times, that a pileup of factors drives more extreme weather. I wasn't just reading that. That was the very headline. A spike in temperatures reflecting two factors, one factor being humans' continued emissions to heat-trapping gases, and the other one is El Nino. The Times says both factors are also setting the thermodynamic stage for more severe hot spells, droughts, wildfires, and even hurricanes. The Times then quotes someone from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a fellow named Rick Spinrad, who talks about the heat that's being trapped, the El Nino heat, presumably, the heat is going to manifest. Times says, in recent weeks, it has manifested in Canada, where many areas are still dealing with huge forest fires that have churned toxic smoke into the United States. But wait! I thought the other journal, not the Times Journal, not the Wall Street Journal, the journal Nature, clearly said, no, not El Nino. This one says, yeah, maybe the little baby El Nino. Now, what I think is going on is this was a either, you know, poorly written article. I don't know what the intent behind the article was. I think the intent wasn't to calm us down. Pile up of factors drives more extreme weather. It was to explain, yo, what the hell's going on? And the two reasons that they come back to are uh, heat trapping emissions and El Nino, and both those things are making it warmer, but they misapply it. I mean, they take this quote from uh, Rick from Noah. They misapply El Nino. They say El Nino was partially responsible for what we saw coming out of Canada, when in fact they just declared El Nino a thing or a thing this time around a couple days ago, and the wildfires predate any effect that El Nino can have. The Times then goes on, and it's more about Noah than you ever thought it would be. And this part really confused me. So they write, Noah, last month, said there was a 40% chance that this year's hurricane season would be near normal. What a meaningless sentence that is. Not only, first of all, they could be wrong. I mean, it could be 31. I guess it could be 71. But there is a 40% chance that it could be near normal. And they go on to say, as if that has any meaning at all, as if uh, we, any of us should plan our jet ski purposes based on that, even if the prediction is totally accurate, a prediction of 40% chance of something happening. They go on to say, but it, Noah, assigned 30% probabilities to the seasons being above or below normal. This is the worst numeric prediction, or at least the worst expression thereof, that I have ever seen. It's not exactly 
a standard bell curve distribution, that near normal size in a bell curve is more like 68% before you get a standard deviation away. But it is just saying, yeah, things will probably be the same, but if they're not the same, there's an equal chance of them being worse or better. So I think the New York Times did not do much of a service by giving us this information. In fact, I looked up how Noah reported on this. It was much more succinct, but much more grabby. Noah predicts a near normal 2023 Atlantic hurricane season. That's it. You don't have to give me the 40 and the 30 and the 30 and above and the 30 below. It'll probably be near normal, which is, I guess, not the sort of thing you want to put in an article that's headlined as the New York Times was, pileup of factors drive more extreme weather. To wit, hurricanes, yeah, they'll probably be normal. I try. You know. You know I try. On the show today, it is a, remember a couple days ago, weeks ago, it was a full show Friday? Well, today it's going to be a two for Thursday. Eh, it really only works with Tuesday. It's going to be a thorough Thursday because we're double interviewing it. First, we interview Ben Terrace, who wrote an excellent book called The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Yes, he's expressing a bit of the flair contained in the pages just in that title alone. And then after we talk to Ben Terrace, because Ben talks a lot about a central figure in his book who was either an addicted or at least a very enthusiastic political polls stir and a political poll gambler, we will talk to an expert in betting on politics, David Reese, one of the hosts of the Election Profit Makers podcast. Again, the one-two punch, Ben Terrace, to talk about Sean McElwee, who actually once hosted The Gist, the founding executive director of Data for Progress. Ben gets into it in his book, The Big Break, and then stay tuned for David. It's all up next. Ben Terrace's new book, The Big Break, The Gambler's Party Animals and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind, is one of those fin de siècle, zeitgeist, I'm out of German or French phrases, attempts to quantify an era that seems chaotic and unquantifiable. The widening gyre is chronicled, and I will read a quote that someone, a character in the book, wrote to Ben, I think what's going on here is that he is writing about something that someone without a bent should try and chronicle. So Ben, it is said of this character, you will crush it and you might ruffle a few feathers along the way, but it seems your heart and mind are in the right place, which in this town, DC, puts you in the minority. I would agree. Ben Terrace, welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me. Who was that character who wrote that to you? Yeah, that that was a nice thing he said to me. He wasn't always quite quite as nice. Uh, he is a a lobbyist named Robert Strick, um, a very interesting lobbyist. Not your your typical Washington character. Lives outside of town uh, on a farm called Alibi Farm. Wears cowboy hats and cowboy boots made of ostrich leather. Um, and he was one of these guys that that figured out the Trump era and made a killing, just made more money almost than any other lobbyist could imagine making uh, after having tried to break in before and just couldn't do it. But he took advantage of the chaos um, and became one of these, you know, very wealthy Trump figures. What was his killer app? What did he figure out? Well, honestly, it was 
he was profiled by the New York Times at the beginning of the of the Trump era, and the profile was just called "How to Get Rich in Trump's Washington." And the answer at that point was basically have an in to the Trump world and be willing to take advantage of it because there weren't that many people that were prepared for Donald Trump's presidency, right? And so if you were a lobbyist in Washington watching the 2016 election, you were fully prepared for Hillary Clinton to be president. You were staffing up with people who had ins to the Democratic Party and and maybe knew Hillary Clinton and could use those connections to, you know, make yourself wealthy and make your your lobby shop important. Um, when Donald Trump won, there weren't a lot of people who were prepared. And this guy uh, was very lucky that he was kind of a minor figure in the, in the Trump uh, campaign out in Oregon, but he was willing to take advantage of whatever small connections he had, and, and, and he made it work out for him. He met Trump once, and the thing that, once, literally, and the thing that made him the big make-or-break moment when we do the uh, biopic of this guy, it was all hinging on a random meeting with someone from New Zealand who maybe he could put the ambassador in touch with Trump if he could get his cell phone. How'd that go down? Yeah, that's right. Um, after Trump won, uh, Strick was was in Washington celebrating. He did days and, and nights of celebrating and was out at the Four Seasons Hotel in Georgetown outside smoking cigars, many whiskeys deep with his business partner. And uh, all of a sudden, a uh, a dog comes up to him and starts sniffing his crotch. And he's like, what the heck's going on here? He pushes the dog away. Uh, and a woman approaches and I think apologizes for her dog. And she has an accent and he and he can't quite place it and says, you know, what are you from England? And she curses. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm not from England. I'm, fr I'm from New Zealand. And turns out she worked at the New Zealand embassy and she was uh, very toasty, said Strick, you know, when she was drinking and angry because uh, her boss, the ambassador, was having a difficult time getting in touch with Trump. And he was like, oh, I can I can do that. I can hook that up for you. And she was like, who the hell are you? And he explained who he was, which was, you know, not anybody really yet, but he did have a way to get a cell phone number for Trump and uh, he connected them. And that just really put him on the scene. Yeah, he wasn't and he wasn't even sure if the cell phone worked and he didn't even connect the ambassador. Well, he can tell me if I'm right. He connected the ambassador to Trump, but they were waiting to connect to the prime minister and that line fell dead. But still, it made Robert Strick. That's right. Yes, he, he, it was just enough of a connection. Mm -hmm. Just enough of a connection, uh, literally and figuratively. So the point of this, he's a colorful character. He was essentially, you know, a minor functionary who had one um, very tenuous in. It paid off in a way he wasn't even sure, just that actual phone connection. And the book gets into the details of Strick's life, uh, some things more scurrilous and disreputable than others. He winds up running for a mayor of a small town and kind of scandalizing everything with his methods. But what did he represent? Is he He's not just in the book as, you know, a striver who made good or look at this hanger on who shouldn't be important. He symbolizes something about the DNA of the era. And what is that? Well, one of the things I was really interested in when I set out to write this book was to figure out you know, whether Trump had permanently changed Washington or not, or whether he had just come, created kind of a stir, a real chaotic moment, and things would go back to normal. And Strick was, was one of these guys that you know Donald Trump opened the door for sideshow-type characters to get on the main stage. And for four years, he took advantage of that. And I was really interested in figuring out, well, what happens to these people who are in Washington, in the scene, once things go, quote unquote, back to normal, 
there really is no normal now, right? After Donald Trump, things are just not going to be normal again. But President Biden is a more normal political figure than Donald Trump. What does his Washington do to people like Strick? And so Strick was out there making a killing, getting all sorts of uh, contracts, foreign contracts with uh, kind of disreputable and controversial um, governments and foreign actors. And he could keep doing that during the Trump years because he could say, look, I can get you uh, access to people in the administration. I can, you're, you know, if you want a meeting, I can get you a meeting, that kind of thing. Well, he's successful under Trump. I was curious, well, what, what was going to happen to him under Biden? The rules are kind of changing again. And so I was following him to see, well, what happens when he tries to, for example, go get a contract with the Belarusian uh, government, right, as war is starting to break out with Ukraine and Russia, right? This is a, the, Belarus was right in the middle of all this, and he was trying to be in the middle of all that. It probably would have worked pretty easily under Trump, at least he thought so. Seeing his, you know, inability and difficulties to get, to get these kind of contracts under Biden felt like it was telling a story of the moment. Yeah. So, and we'll get to uh, the progressives in a second, but let's look at CPAC. Now, Strick is uh, essentially a nobody who becomes maybe a somebody or at least has a moment in the sun and a profile in the New York Times. CPAC, CPAC always existed. Um, you, as the kind of chronicler of quirky Washington, most people would say, I guess it's like how most people say to late night comedians, oh, you must love Trump. It makes your job easy. And the late night comedians are like, actually, it's such low hanging fruit. It's not a great challenge. That was your relationship to CPAC pre-Trump. It's all a bunch of people who just want to get interviewed by reporters who note their quirks. But my point in mentioning CPAC is they existed before Trump. They were fairly prominent and powerful. They existed through Trump. So how does there and the Schlapp's interaction with Trump uh, advance your thesis? Well, the thing about, about CPAC is uh, it, it's always been a big event. It's, a, it's an annual conference and, and Republican candidates for president will go to it. But if you wanted to see kind of the, the mood of the Republican Party, you could go there and you could kind of see how it was shifting. And so when Donald Trump became president, CPAC just started to, to reflect him. And I, I was interested in the person who ran that show, right? That's Matt Schlapp. He was a George W. Bush political director in the White House, kind of a classic establishment guy. He was what the Republican establishment acted like. He looked like a Republican establishment guy, you know, kind of big white hair. Um, I think I could say that, you know, he could have been the mascot for a team called the Washington lobbyists. Like he just looked that way. Um, and to be able to watch as he goes from that kind of establishment figure to one of the most loyal Trump supporters in, in Washington, in the world, really, at least, you know, on paper, uh, to be able to see that happen up close felt to me like the story of the Republican Party, right? You, you can, you, people were like, oh, how did this party get under the thumb of Donald Trump? You know, he stands against so many things that they're supposed to supposedly stand for. And how can conservatives... Um, you know, wrap their arms around this guy. And I felt like if I could see why and how and what it looked like with Matt Schlapp doing that, I could kind of get a sense of, of the whole party. Was a big part of it because he was making money off it? Because as you document, he lost a lot of clients. He had like a two and a half million dollar consultancy. And then Jed Legum, uh, the substacker, started writing about his clients and they all started dropping him just because he was affiliated with Trump. He was down to $390,000 in clients. So did his affiliation with Trump enrich him? Yeah, I mean, before it all kind of, you know, went to hell, it, it, it really uh, was a financial boon to him. 
he I mean, he literally moves during the Trump years into the largest house on Mansion Drive uh, in, in Alexandria, Virginia. Like that's, he, that's 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 a hat on a hat, uh-huh. as they say in comedy, <laughs> exactly. right? That is so on the nose. Yeah. But go ahead. Well, if you want it to be even more on the nose, he then at one point rents a crane and puts in his front yard a giant Trump flag that's basically like this is the house that Trump built, right? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, CPAC becomes a must attend. All claims, event. all Schlapp family claims to subtlety disintegrate in this moment. Exactly, and and yes, money was a big part of it. Um, I think you know the way that Washington often works is people go where the power and the influence is. Uh, people change their ideology plenty of times if if it makes sense uh, in the moment. Um, and that could be financial or it could be people like to be close to power and they you know, maybe want to end up in the history books or, or whatever else. Um, but also, I think what happens is once you get there, I do think there is kind of an emotional change that happens to people. You, you may start doing things because of a financial incentive and, and not and not be sure if you believe it or not. But then I think you kind of dig in. And once you start getting attacked by the left or attacked by the established, you know, former establishment for acting a certain way. I think a lot of people say, you know what? No, this is this is a true belief I have now. And, you know, go screw yourself. Let's get to Sean McElwee. Here's a guy who I once let uh, host the gist because he's an interesting guy. Very, very progressive. Started a group called Data for Progress. Um, bragged about his use of uh, um, phrasing to change the Overton window. I was the guy, he would always say, who popularized the phrase abolish ICE. So it did seem like this guy was very much aligned with the uh, the DSA and Bernie Sanders and AOC. But as you chronicle, chronicle him, a much more complicated character, he bet against some of his own candidates, literally bet on predictit.com and other betting markets. So what did you come to believe Sean McElwee really believed? Well, it's a really good question about Sean. And, and I'll answer that by saying, that even some of the closest people who know him aren't sure about that, right? I, I talked to, among other people, uh, one of his ex-girlfriends uh, who lived with him for seven years, or they dated for seven years and lived together for a number of those years. Um, first of all, he put me in touch with her. It wasn't like I was just going and trying to find the uh, the people who would say the most negative things about him. He said, she knows me well, you should go talk to her. And when I did, she had this question about him, which was, she didn't know if he was more influenced by his desire to be powerful and influential and have people remember him in history books, or if he was more, you know, inspired to do good. And that was a tension that he had in him at all times. And it's a tension that I don't know, you know, which is winning out at any given moment. And I think that's important to know about him because if you look at the way that he talks about politics, you might look at him and say, look, his ideologies have changed so many times. He came up as a conservative in a conservative household and his way of rebelling, rebelling was to be uh, a libertarian. He became, uh, you know, like you said, a, a democratic socialist type talking about abolish ice and supporting AOC early and, you know, wearing Bernie bro uh, paraphernalia to his uh, his happy hours in Brooklyn that he would host. Uh, then he moved a little bit to the Warren camp. And then now he's kind of this pragmatic um, Biden type um, pollster, at least he was during the past year, where he would tell people to say, to say, to not say things like abolish ICE. He would say, don't say defund the police. Stop saying things like that. We need to win over moderates, right? And does that mean that he changed his politics or did it mean he changed his tactics? 
he would say that he's always had the same belief system, which is to advance as many you know democratic objectives as possible. And your tactics have to change based on, um, you know, on the moment. And I think there's there's truth to that, right? Like it having Joe Biden president means you can accomplish different things as a Democrat than when you are just in the opposition trying to fight Donald Trump. And so he, yeah, he talked about moving the Overton's window. And now that Biden was around, it was time to walk through the Overton's door. Yeah. I don't know if you went to any of his Brooklyn happy hours, but the uh, vibe there was, it was, well, a little like the poker games that he would have that you sat in on. There was a lot of bluster. There was a lot of excitement. Um, It became the place to mark yourself as a progressive thinker. He really was excellent at creating an atmosphere around him. Uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand went there to sort of mark herself before she ran for president as just by, just by very dint of attending among progressive people in the media and politics. It was like, ooh, she really is serious about this. So I don't care if someone has a consistent ideology that never changes, especially if that person is a political consultant whose job it is to sort of read where the mood of the country is and position candidates and work on messaging. I do care about a couple things. And one is... I never truly t- trusted data for progress. I thought they they were an advocacy organization that wasn't lying per se and wasn't cooking the books on their polls. And 538 would give out its grade of pollsters and they always did very well. And Nate Silver would always say, whatever Sean's politics, the polls are good. But I always thought, you know, if they had polls that really contradict the candidates they're backing or the narrative they're peddling, because not all their polls were who's winning a race, some of their polls are, what do Americans think on this issue, they just wouldn't release them. They're under no obligation as an advocacy organization to release the bad polls. Plus, they would conduct their polls not in a dishonest way, but you know, some fingers would be on the scale to get certain results they wanted. Did you go back and look at that? Should we come to question the data that Data for Progress was putting out into the world? Well, for sure, the the pushing a narrative was the point of Data for Progress. So you're not you were not wrong to be skeptical about that because yeah, um, if you're working for a client and you get a poll and that is a poll that the client doesn't like and that client is paying you, they're going to say, "Don't put that out." You know, we we have a narrative that we're pushing. And so when he got hired by people like you know the John Fetterman campaign, who hired him in the last election, which was a really big get for an upstart polling company. I mean, it's the biggest probably the biggest race in the country. Um, and he wasn't the only polling, they weren't the only polling group working for them, but you know, that's a big job. When th- they were hired specifically to push a narrative, which was, we are crushing our primary opponents. What he, you know, his his policy proposals are broadly popular. And these things were probably true. I don't I don't have any reason to to say that he was cooking the books on on the polls. But I'm sure if they had a poll they didn't like, they just said, yeah, don't release that one. They were an advocacy group. And 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 part of what his struggle was is he didn't really know what he wanted to be when he grew up, right? Did he want to be an advocacy group that got paid to do this forever? Or did he want to be somebody who ended up in the White House and did polling that was you know taken seriously and not necessarily for public consumption, but to make uh, the case of, of how you should run a campaign or what policies you should be putting forward? Um, and he kind of wanted it both ways and, and ultimately ended up kind of sinking him. So just as a principled conservative who stuck with CPAC under the schlaps and then maybe said, I don't know if there was a, call, a chance to 
look within and had a scales fall from your eyes moment, maybe the principal conservative might say, what, what have I been doing? Should uh, progressives look at their association with Sean and Data for Progress and say, huh, I wonder if this really undermines the uh, principles that I espoused or thought were true? Well, I talked to a lot of people who worked for Sean, um, and this is something that they wondered about, right? Um, they felt at the end of the year, and they ended up pushing Sean out of the organization that he started, which is a very big deal. Um, so they did not think highly of him at the end, needless to say. Um, but what was difficult for them is they didn't know how much of the experience to completely throw away, right? A lot of them came from very progressive backgrounds, working for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, and ended up thinking that, you know, maybe incrementalism was a better way to achieve the goals that they cared about. Maybe don't say Medicare for all all the time, even if you really care about it, because it's not going to pass, but this other bill could pass, right? And they didn't want to throw that out because they felt like they'd seen data. They believed the data. It wasn't like Sean was the only person there. They had actual pollsters conducting these polls. And so they didn't want to throw that away. They didn't, that experience meant something and was, you know, offered valuable lessons. But there was a kind of cynicism that ran through Sean and through the organization that a lot of them wondered, like, how do they get caught up in that? And, and the betting is a big part of that. You know, Sean, as, as you mentioned, you know, his girlfriend thought that he was a degenerate gambler and he sort of proved that in a way with the way that he that he operated at Data for Progress. He would make bets on races that he was polling. He would bet against Democrats often, both online and with friends. And in addition to that, he would encourage the staff to bet too. You know, he had a, a theory of the case for this. It was, you know, he called it like his heuristics lessons where people could learn from losing. They could learn from winning. They could have a kind of a tactile feel for whether they were good or bad at their job. Fine. I mean, there's some there's some logic there, but it also ultimately turned the whole thing into a game for people. And these are people who were who believed in what they were trying to to do. And did they undermine the cause? Both because it made them look bad when it got reported that there's like all this gambling going on. And B, did it change the way that they thought about, you know, the job? Were they just trying to win elections because, it, you know, they could win money or were they actually trying to, you know, accomplish things? Ben Terrace is the author of The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Ben, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. So we just heard from Ben Terrace who documented the case of Sean McElwee, the data for progress impresario who was undone by a gambling habit. Now, I have been known to put down a wager or two on the predicted markets. I actually did pretty well, kind of uh, intuiting that Sarah Palin would not make the comeback that was predicted by many other bettors. But I keep the stakes low and just try to interest myself. Apparently, Sean McElwee was betting tens of thousands of dollars. Now, the election podcast, the election gambling podcast <laughs> that I so love is called Election Profit Makers. It is co-hosted by David Reese. And I wanted to have David on to talk about the plausibility of some of these numbers and the what to think ethically about what McElwee was doing. Hello, David. Welcome to The Gist. Good morning. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, 
Some of the numbers associated with Sean McElwee, the biggest number is he is said to have bet or he bragged that he bet $20,000 on Joe Biden winning in 2020. He also, in different races, claims to have won $14,000 because Chantel Brown beat Nina Turner in an Ohio congressional race. He bet $3,000 on John Fetterman winning the primary, which seemed to be great for his chances of working with the Fetterman campaign. But then he bet against Fetterman for the general, which uh, certainly hurt his standing. Just in terms of the figures, what do you think? Can you really bet that much uh, on these legal markets like Predict It? The $20,000 figure raised my eyebrows because one of the reasons that Predict It was allowed to operate for so long under the um, protection of a so-called no-action letter by the CFTC is that although it is sort of online gambling, it's also nominally an academic project about the wisdom of crowds and using real money to predict political outcomes. And one of the stipulations that the CFTC established was that for any given market, for any given bet, will Joe Biden win the state of South Carolina in 2020? Or... How many times will President Trump tweet in the week of August 3rd? Every trader was limited to an $850 investment. You could not bet more than $850 of your own money on any given outcome. Right. So when he said that he put $20,000 in to Joe Biden winning, $850 into $20,000 I can't do, but I know it's more than twenty. dollars <laughs> yeah, which like means and yeah. and I, I can't remember now because my brain is broken how many Biden related contracts there were in 2020. Right. But there would have to be more than 20 such contracts in order for him to to have placed twenty thousand dollars of his own money into that outcome. Well, every state had a contract. You could just bet, but he didn't win every state. Did every did did they literally have fifty individual state contracts? I even for predicted that seems debased. Yeah, <laughs> debased. There's I mean, also I mean, there's also will a Democrat contracts like will a Democrat win? Will the you know you could bet on specific margins of victory? I guess it's possible to put twenty thousand dollars down in general on everything that was possibly on offer about Biden, and who knows, maybe he had some burner account also. Well, also, I mean, he got in a little bit of trouble for bundling straw donations. Maybe he had maybe he had straw investors on Predict It where he would urge friends to open accounts under their own name and then funnel money. I mean, who knows? The, basically, yeah. the more I've read about this fellow, the less I I take him at his word. He seems to have some integrity. <laughs> yeah, um, that was liquidity that was part, issues that is part with and parcel integrity. of what was going on. But what about some of the other amounts? Do you know of people, either fans of the podcast or just people you've come across who make that or lose thousands of dollars on congressional races? That seem I mean, again, you have to remember that with that $850 limit, a high profile market or a high profile outcome like who will win the 2020 election, that's going to generate on predicted send a lot of different contracts because they're going to they're going to want to maximize the amount of money that they can take in, the amount of users they can engage for that outcome. So like you mentioned, they can have state contracts about the presidential election. They can have margin of victory contracts about the presidential election. For those elections that aren't so high profile, like a Senate election or a European election, most of those will have at the most two or three related contracts. 
they won't it's not worth their time i guess to generate a lot of contracts if he made three thousand dollars on fetterman is that is that what you said that's the fetterman primary alone oh the primary yeah that makes sense i mean you know if that's not a $3,000 investment. That's a $3,000 return. If you went back and looked at the history of that contract, you might see Fetterman taking a dip after a bad debate performance or something. If he gobbled up a bunch of cheap shares, then yeah, it makes sense that he could make three grand off of that. Absolutely. So let's pull back a little bit. What do you think? First of all, the 850 cap is supposed to be supposed to make it so that participating in these markets is fun. Now, maybe people will say 850. That's a lot of money. I don't know. Compared to sports gambling, it's actually a tiny bit of money. Do you think that that's an effective cap uh, to keep people from becoming addicted gamblers uh, on politics? Well, <laughs> I, I I mean, ironically, don't tell anyone who listens to my podcast. I'm actually terrified of gambling. I never uh-huh. gamble. I prefer to re. I, I think of this as political investing oh, okay. um, rather than gambling because I have nightmares about losing all my money at a casino for, you know, because it's just in it's in God's hands. Um, when it comes to the eight hundred and fifty dollar limit, I have never come close to investing that much money into an individual market. Now, my co-host has he maxed out, unfortunately, on Donald Trump losing the 2016 election. Uh-huh. So he kind of had the opposite the opposite experience that McElway had, where he lost thousands of dollars on election night 2016. I mean, happily, he made it up in 2020 um, because he went big on Biden winning. But I will say that when it comes to that $850 limit, when I was doing a little research about this Sean fellow, I went to his medium. He had a mm-hmm. medium account. Sure. And he posted a lot in 2016, 2018, I guess it was. And then he was silent for years until in 2022, he wrote a really impassioned screed about how we need to deregulate predicted and free, unleash the wisdom of these predicted markets. And one of his complaints was the way to make these markets more accurate was to remove the $850 cap because that that meant that there was a people couldn't really go all in on their convictions and that made it a less accurate model of yeah. investor prediction to, as to political outcomes. Yeah, this is a little like, I don't know, Cheech and Chong advocating for higher potency THC or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> say, because of because of society, not because of me. Unleash the beast so that so that for the betterment of humanity and the and the accumulated wisdom of political science i can put hundreds of thousands of dollars of my friend sam Bankford, sam bankman frieds money into predict it and just go just go ape shit well what about that what about the idea that there is an academic or intellectual value to seeing how people bet when they actually bet their money i'll take the audience back a little bit, there was something called the Iowa prediction market. And for a time, it, I don't know if it was much more predictive than other methods of predicting, but the philosophy was sound that people could say, oh yeah, I think this guy will win. I think that uh, woman will win. But if they're putting their own skin in the game, those predictions do become more accurate. So what about the value, the academic or intellectual accuracy of pairing actual monetary bets with predictions. I guess it makes sense on paper. I mean, frankly, that's a bit above my pay grade. The thing I would say is that it does seem somewhat crazy that a pollster who worked with individual campaigns was also bragging about betting on the outcomes of 
the predicted markets because predicted did not just reflect reality. I mean, I think one of the reasons you saw a lot of so-called irrational betting, including my own betting, is because people hoped that predicted would also create reality insofar as it would change the narrative. Oh, so-and-so is surging on predicted. What do the traders know that the rest of us don't know? And that obviously becomes even more convoluted and complicated if you know, which is the case, that Predicted had no rules against insider trading. It was completely fine for campaign insiders to to trade on information that only they knew at the time. So maybe Sean McElwee was, you know, got poll results before they were released. He was allowed to place positions on predicted markets. That seems crazy to me that he would admit doing that. I understand do I understand doing that in a in in the shadows, shamefully, privately, and not telling anyone you're doing that. That's sketchy enough, but then to come out and announce it and to kind of undermine your own integrity and your own professional reputation seems bonkers to me. I just, but tell me about what you just said, that you used it to try to shape reality. What do you mean? That you were essentially making bets so that you would be part of, um, uh, you would give momentum to the side of the bet that you were taking? Yeah, absolutely. I was never into this to make a lot of money. I just got into it because, you know, you know, at first in 20 summer of 2016, it was just to troll all the Trump supporters. You know, I just short Trump all summer long when we were convinced he wasn't going to win the GOP uh, nomination and he had no political future. I mean, obviously, history had the last laugh in that instance. But yeah, it's like if you're not if you're not maxing out, which I was not close to maxing out in any given contract. Then you can, you know, on our podcast, we made a distinction between like the heart bets and the head bets, right? The head bets are the kind of cold calculated decisions that you make if you actually want a financial return. Now, between you and me, I was never investing enough money where the finances were really going to impact my life. It was never going to- probably why. Yeah, it was never going <laughs> to be the deciding factor as to whether or not I could buy soup for, the, for my family. So for me, it was more like- I'm just going to bet on the things that make me feel good. It's like a wishing well, basically. You're treating predict it like a wishing well instead of an investment vehicle. But if enough people do that, right, then maybe somebody, maybe some news outlet writes an essay about a trending candidate on predicted. Or like I said, what do the predicted people know that we don't know? So I have yet to read any academic studies about how accurate predicted was in predicting election outcomes. I mean, obviously, in the moments before a market closes and it approaches 99%, it approaches 100% accuracy. But in terms of the, you know, longer range or, um, you know, when the timeline is more extended, when you're months out from an election result, I don't know how accurate predicted is. It might be accurate. I'm not saying it's not. I just, I don't know. What about the exact opposite play, which is you say to yourself, it would be so bad if this candidate wins, I will give myself at least a psychological, it will serve as a psychological bomb to some degree if I win money on his victory. This way I could say, oh my God, this is really bad for whatever, the third congressional district in Wisconsin. But at least I made $200. I made a couple hundred bucks. Psychological (laughs) hedging. I think that happens all the time in sports gambling from what I've heard. So my co-host John Kimball and I both grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So we've grown up watching UNC basketball. Obviously, anytime there's a Duke UNC basketball game, it's psychologically very fraught. And sometimes people will bet on Duke winning 
so that if, the, if that tragic circumstance comes to pass, they might be heartbroken, but at least their wallet will be padded. There was definitely the same types of dynamics going on in the predicted space. And you would see people admit to it in the comments section because Predictit, like so many other toxic online environments, had a very robust and active comments section. And I've actually wondered if it would be possible to see if this Sean fellow was ever commenting on Predictit. That would be fascinating to see if he was using his insider status publicly to brag about intel that he had in the predicted comments section. I do enjoy how often you've referred to Sean as the Sean fellow, the Sean Chat. You know what? It's just because <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I thought it was- McElwee. Let's say It's not McElwee. McElwee is better. It, well- Maybe that'll be part of his rebrand. <laughs> There's a lot. On the, on the list of things that maybe he should reconsider, we'll put that up there. The life choices. Um, wasn't there something odd going on with after the 2020 election was called? It was done. Donald Trump- had for all intents and purposes, not the uh, not the not the January sixth certifying of election, he'd won. It should have been you know ninety nine something percent bet on Joe Biden. You should have been able to make no money on that, or the day after the election. But maybe because of some of the psychology, or because the people on Predict It wanted to shape reality, Trump fans, that wasn't the case, right? Yeah, there was a lot of arbitrage to be made in this collective mania or delusion or fan or super fandom, you know, if we want to keep the sports analogy going, that Trump would somehow pull it off and that he had actually won the 2020 election. There was still space to make money there, like you mentioned, long, long after you should have been able to make money there. And there are plenty of people who are happy to take that money. Did you so, take yeah. advantage of that? Did you bet on that when he had won? No, because by the time by the time the 2020 election was over, I was so sick of politics. I didn't want to be unpredicted anymore. It, you know, it comes and goes. It's like, you know, it was like back when I was on Twitter. You can only take so much of it, you know? Yeah. I listened to the show and it's, you know, 20 minutes of talking about whatever, maybe a concert you guys have seen and um, a TV show, you know, life, fun, fun stuff, some politics, maybe an election market is mentioned a half hour in. Is that because you and John have done a little bit of a turnaround about your appetite for actual election profit making? Well, there's that. And also there's the fact that Predicted is a ghost town. The CFTC has withdrawn the no action letters. So Predicted has not been allowed to create any new markets. So for instance, at the height of the 2016 election, when they would have markets, they would literally have markets you could bet. I'm sorry, you could invest in whether or not a certain word or phrase would be mentioned in a presidential debate. I mean, they had markets for everything, which is one of the reasons, incidentally, that the CFTC was like, what are you guys up to? Is this really a high-minded exercise in political forecasting? They are down now to a mere 11 markets because as markets close out, they disappear from the homepage of Predicted, obviously. You know, correct shares get paid out at a dollar per bet and incorrect shares get zero. And then that market is closed and has disappeared. And so the only markets that are left are these these 11 piddly markets. There's almost no action left on Predicted. Most of the hardcore users have left for greener pastures to other online um, bet, betting sites. Yeah. Less, right. less, um, less legal ones, less technically by the law of the United States legal betting sites. Yes, and they don't have the tweety affectations of an academic study like Predicted mm, yes. does. And, you know, every so often one of our listeners will send us a link and say, you should check out the Kalshi market or you should check out this other market. There's nothing left on Predicted. The scene is dead. 
But for the time being, it's kind of just like running around in an empty warehouse. You know, there's like <laughs> there's not much going on and you don't want to spend too much time in there, but it is still kind of fun and eerie. So for now, we're, we're still unpredicted. Do you see predict it and the fact that you could bet on predict it? Is it something where you said, wow, this is great. This should be allowed. It fits in exactly with my philosophy of what should be allowed in the world. Or did you see it as just another mark marker of the Rome-like um, civilization in decline, fin de cicla type um, vibe going on in America? Sure, let's, uh, let's take these gigantic monumental risks with our political leaders, but let's make a couple hundred bucks along the way. How did you look I mean, at it? Yeah. You know, a um, postmodern academic would say that predicted.org is a very rich text. There's a lot to consider with this website. Everything like you mentioned from um, the kind of fall of the Roman Empire that is the predicted comment section, you know, like so many other online political forums, the comment section was toxic. There's no other word for it. Um, Just a lot of just heinous comments. There's also the phenomenon of betting money on real-world political outcomes that will have profound profound consequences for many, many different people, most of whom don't have the luxury of investing money as a lark on a political website. There's just so much to consider with Predict It, you know? And then, like I mentioned, there is the at least still unknown to me verdict as to whether its predictive utility was greater or lesser than any other poll or any other pundit. You know what I mean? Did it actually work? Was the experiment successful? And that, again, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it was, I think predicted, um, predicted's rise coinciding with the rise of Donald J. Trump is, is unsurprising in retrospect. They are kind of very complementary of each other in terms of a sort of, um, There's a sense of kind of debased exhilaration in both of those phenomena and a sort of uh, nihilistic giddiness, at least for me, in in Predicted and in Trump. And I think also Trump's huge upset on election night 2016 and the fact that so many Trump supporters made so much money on that night and that so many well-meaning, earnest, do-gooder, liberal lefty types like me and my co-host were, you know, totally pantsed that evening. I think that also uh, makes a lot of sense in retrospect and fits very neatly into predicted its brand of, yeah, a sort of, like I said, giddy nihilism, at least from where I sit. I'm sure if you, I'm sure, if, I'm sure if Johnny predicted was listening right now, he would say, there's nothing nihilistic about it. We're trying to save the future of humanity by proving that blah, 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 and predictions and blah, blah, blah. But at, from a user experience, from a user standpoint, It's crazy. David Reese, along with John Kimball, is the host of the Election Profit Makers podcast. Good talking to you, David. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. And as always, Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, well, Michelle Pesca is responsible for who I dedicate this show to. This show is done in the memory of Layla Hunter. There are some podcasts I listen to where they talk about their feline companions a lot, and you know them. Perhaps you know the names Monkey or Boomer. But I don't talk about my cats that much. But Layla was a beautiful, 
if somewhat exasperating, force in her life. Uh, She passed away today. I don't wish to bum you out too much about it. But these animals, these cats, Michelle had Layla before she even met me. These animals, they certainly have a big impact when they're here and can deliver a crushing blow when they're gone. Layla Hunter, we dedicate the gist to you. Um, Mumperuji, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.